Hello, and welcome to PrimeMed's podcast on A Case of Severe Asthma, How Eosinophils Can Impact Asthma Evaluation and Treatment. We welcome Dr. Nicola Hanania, Associate Professor of Medicine and Director, Airways Clinical Research Center at Baylor College of Medicine. The learning objectives of this podcast are, one, discuss the role of eosinophils in the pathophysiology of asthma, two, Examine biomarkers that help identify individuals with eosinophilic asthma and guide treatment decisions. And three, individualize treatment for patients with severe asthma by selecting pharmacology that targets the specific underlying molecular pathway. Before we get started, let me remind everyone that this podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. For more information, please visit the activity page for this podcast on www.primed.com. Hello, welcome to this educational activity. My name is Nick Hanania. I'm Associate Professor of Medicine and at Baylor College of Medicine and Interim Section Chief of the Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine at Bentob General Hospital in Houston, Texas. As an asthma specialist, I know that before presenting to me, many patients first see their primary care provider. Therefore, it's my pleasure to discuss eosinophilic asthma as it relates to primary care clinician. I'm here to give you tips and strategies for identifying and treating eosinophilic asthma in your patients and in your practice. To assist our discussion of eosinophilic asthma, we'll also review the case of a patient with severe asthma. However, before we jump to the case, let us discuss some background information. At first, let's discuss the role of uh, eosinophils and their role that they play in the pathophysiology of asthma. As we know, asthma is a chronic disease of the airways, characterized by airway inflammation, airway hyperresponsiveness, and reversible airway obstruction. Now, airway inflammation in this disease is pretty heterogeneous, and it is not a one-size-fits-all type of inflammation. Thus we see the different response to different medication, the different presentation of asthma, and the different course of disease. Therefore, in recent years, it was imperative to reclassify asthma according to its phenotype, or what I mean by clinical presentation, but also according to endotypes, which are the mechanisms of the disease itself. Two important classifications have now emerged according to the type of underlying inflammation in the airways in asthma. The first is type 2 asthma, and the second is the non-type 2 asthma. Type 2 asthma can be driven by allergic triggers, uh, usually driven by IgE and mast cells, as well as exposure to allergen, but also by non-allergic triggers, including microbes, pollution, and other important exposures and is often associated with what we call eosinophilic inflammation, usually characterized by increased both airway and also blood eosinophils. So in talking about eosinophils, these are cells of the innate immune system. They are mainly tissue-dwelling leukocytes and are typically a minor component of circulating uh, blood leukocytes or white blood cells. Eosinophils contain stored uh, preformed cationic granule proteins, including four cationic proteins, the EDN, MBP, ECP, and EPO, and also preformed cytokines, uh, most important of which are interleukin-4 and interleukin-13. 
eosinophils produce cytotoxic proteins that can directly damage the bronchial epithelium. They also produce pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines and can have direct impact upon the non-immune cells within the lung, the structural cells. Interleukin-5 is the main cytokine responsible for maturation, activation, and survival of eosinophils. In fact, IL-5 signals uh, from the tissue to the bone marrow, promoting the maturation of eosinophil progenitors and increasing the number of circulating eosinophils. Let's start by answering a few questions. Well, first of all, what is precision medicine that we hear about? And why is it important, uh, especially when we discuss asthma, particularly severe asthma? Precision medicine is a medical model that proposes the customization of healthcare with medical decisions, treatments, practices, or products being tailored to the individual patient. It stipulates that medical care should be des designed to optimize efficiency or therapeutic benefit for a particular group of patients, especially um, using genetic or molecular profiling. While it was first used in treating patients with cancer, precision medicine has now encompassed many other diseases, including asthma. In asthma, a precision medicine management approach involves selecting the right medication to the right patient based on the patient's disease profile, phenotype, and endotype. This can happen by using clinical, physiologic, radiologic, or biologic biomarkers. In today's discussion, we will focus on biomarkers. So the next question is, now that we understand the pathophysiology of eosinophils in asthma, let's discuss how this is relevant to primary care. In a United States study of adults with severe asthma, more than two-thirds of patients uh, had what we call eosinophilic asthma. Eosinophilic asthma, and sometimes referred to as e-asthma, is a distinct type of asthma characterized by elevated levels of blood or sputum or both eosinophils, and at least one clinical characteristic, which usually has to do with severe disease. In eosinophilic asthma, there is persistence of eosinophilic inflammation, eosinophilic numbers increase, and uh, they continue to produce various mediators, which then impact other cells and the airway tissue resulting in mucus hypersecretion, tissue damage, and even airway remodeling. Therefore, patients with eosinophilic asthma may have allergic and non-allergic triggers. Indeed, there are two sides for the story for eosinophilic asthma. Early onset eosinophilic asthma is one type that is usually triggered by environmental allergens and is usually seen for in early onset disease while late-onset eosinophilic asthma is usually triggered by non-allergic triggers and is often associated with severe disease and upper airway symptoms, such as chronic rhinitis uh, with or without nasal polyps. And some patients in, in late-onset eosinophilic non-allergic asthma have aspirin or NSAID-exacerbated disease. You also may see high healthcare utilization in these patients, and often they're not responsive to the usual asthma therapy. 
It is important for a primary care provider to understand the concept of this type of asthma and identify the patients early so that a more precise treatment can be implemented. So while we are on the topic of eosinophil, let's discuss how eosinophils in asthma patients may be associated with other systemic disease that one should look for and should have an eye for at least uh, in assessing patients presenting with severe eosinophilic asthma. So other rare diseases that may be associated with eosinophilic immune dysfunction, which may coexist with asthma, include hyperesinophilic syndrome or HES, eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangitis or EGPA, previously called Shirk-Strauss syndrome, eosinophilic esophagitis, and chronic sinusitis with and without nasal polyposis. These conditions, although rare, occur disproportionately in patients with concomitant asthma, and they usually indicate a pathophysiologic con continuum between upper and lower airway inflammation. Therefore, it's, it's very important to look for these diseases in patients who have difficult to control or severe asthma, as their recognition may change how we approach such patients uh, when we treat their asthma. Furthermore, improper accumulation and expression of eosinophils can also contribute to dermatologic conditions, such as atopic dermatitis, chronic spontaneous urticaria, and delayed hypersensitivity reactions. Many of the emerging therapies uh, prescribed or described later that we're going to discuss are FDA-approved to combat some of these eosinophilic conditions. So clearly, the role of eosinophils in health and disease is far from extensive and complex than previously appreciated. This is important to primary care because as a primary care provider, you have to increase your level of suspicion for eosinophilic patients with asthma with above, when, when, above, when the above diseases are present. Conversely, in patients with eosinophilic asthma, these other diseases may actually complicate the course of the disease. Now let's go back to asthma. Let's imagine that you have a patient and you suspect eosinophilic asthma. Well, now I'll discuss with you a, 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 a hypothetical patient scenario or a case. So our, our patient is Anne. She's a 50-year-old woman who presents to your office with symptoms of shortness of breath, and she has never smoked in the past. She does say that she's had 10-year history of moderate severe asthma. She's had chronic sinusitis with nasal polyps. She has seasonal allergic rhinitis. She's had history of exacerbation and had three visits to the emergency department over the last year because of her asthma. And most recent flare-up of her asthma was two weeks ago and for which she was treated with a course of oral corticosteroids. Currently, she's on a short-acting beta agonist when needed, which she's using frequently. She's taking high-dose inhaled steroid, long-acting beta agonist combination, and she's on over-the-counter nasal steroid that she usually uses during the spring. Her symptoms include cough, chestiness, shortness of breath, nasal congestion. She also mentioned that she had uh, some paresthesias in the hands and feet, but denies any skin rashes. On exam, she's wheezing, she has runny nose, 
uh, and she has a, a what looks like a moderate rash in the inner elbow but it's not typical uh, for uh, for atopic dermatitis or eczema when we saw her in the clinic her asthma control test was 17 and as a reminder of the asthma control test is a self-reported five question questionnaire it's really a screening test to tell you if the patient has well controlled not well controlled or very poorly controlled asthma the questions focus on a four-week recall in order to assess symptoms and asthma control in general a score more than 20 uh, usually depicts well-controlled asthma a score less than 20 or 19 uh, and above 15 is is not well-controlled asthma and a score less than 15 usually reflects very poorly controlled asthma so asthma control is a very important why is it important because it tells you what the patient is feeling more so than asking how you're doing but also asthma control predicts exacerbation somebody with poor asthma control is definitely at high risk of subsequent exacerbation so for Anne we had lung function done and her spirometry shows an FEV1 of 68% uh, of predicted uh, with an improvement to 82% after uh, bronchodilation and as a reminder a significant reversibility on airway of airway obstruction is an improvement in FEV1 by 12% and 200 ml and this would include other improvement in fev1 or fvc or force vital capacity so here you can see there is significant improvement to bronchodilator with a baseline fev1 of 68 percent obviously when we see such a patient we always are worried about adherence and uh, compliance with therapy and adherence to the management as well as use of inhaler device because many of these patients may not know how to use it but she reports that she's been taking her ICS lava every day we can confirm you looking at the medical record that she has uh, been refilling her medication and upon asking her to demonstrate she does have a good inhaler technique so based on this information presented this is a young woman who continues to have symptoms despite what seems to be adequate therapy you start being suspicion that maybe this patient has uh, severe asthma and maybe she has eosinophilic asthma. Um, and the question is, why do you suspect this and what do you do? Well, first of all, her asthma is not well controlled despite using multiple therapy, despite having good inhaler technique. She's had multiple exacerbation, emergency department visit, uh, and she is a high healthcare utilizer. Uh, this patient has an adult onset asthma although she has seasonal allergy she's also symptomatic all year round so there may be non-allergic triggers as well and i as i mentioned before a large number of patients with severe asthma have eosinophilic asthma in fact two-thirds of them as i mentioned in previous discussion therefore it makes sense that we would like to know if this is eosinophilic asthma or not and if not what type of asthma are we dealing with so by now our suspicion is growing more uh, and we wanted to know if there is anything else so uh, how do you go around identifying this well thanks thankfully now as the knowledge in asthma progresses we have certain biomarkers that we can actually do 
uh, in the lab, but also sometimes in the clinic, that can help us decipher what type of asthma are we dealing with. And before we dig deep into biomarkers, let's talk about what uh, what are what what do we know about biomarkers? How important are biomarkers in asthma? Now here we're talking about biologic biomarkers because there are radiologic and physiologic biomarkers which we will not talk about today. And so biomarkers are important in reflecting the type of asthma you're dealing with. They allow us as clinicians to recognize the underlying endotype or biologic mechanism that may be driving airway inflammation, such as whether we're dealing with type 2 or non-type 2 asthma. While biomarkers can be different kinds, right now the most important biomarkers are biologic biomarkers that we measure in the blood or exhaled air or the sputum. A good biomarker should be easily measured, should be reproducible, and should be cheap. Um, and in fact, a good biomarker should have both predictive and prognostic properties and as a plus, if it has a pharmacodynamic properties, it would be great. What I mean by pharmacodynamic, it means the level of biomarkers goes down with treatment. What I mean by predictive is that it predicts uh, the response to therapy. And what I mean by prognostic, it means it gives an idea of whether we're dealing with high-risk patient. It, it depicts prognosis. So now that we know what biomarkers are, Let's talk about specific biomarkers for severe asthma. And the first, and of course, the topic of our discussion is eosinophilic asthma. So naturally, we're going to talk about blood eosinophils. Now, that's an easy test to do or measure. You know, most of us will measure CBC with differential on patients who come to us for any disease. And certainly, when you send it out, you will have a differential and you can actually estimate the absolute eosinophil count. Now, of course, sputum eosinophilia may be a more sensitive biomarker, but it's really hard to obtain and process. And indeed, some research centers and some specialized centers do sputum eosinophils to check on patients with severe asthma. However, studies have shown that blood eosinophils can correlate very well with airway eosinophils. And because they're easily measured, they are actually been uh, the ones that we look for to depict eosinophilic asthma. So the absolute blood eosinophil count is a good surrogate of eosinophilic inflammation. So long as you rule out other causes of eosinophilia, as you know, high eosinophils can be seen in other diseases such as parasitic infestation. In general, an eosinophil count more than 150 to 300 cells per cubic liter on repeated measurements at least three times in a patient with asthma suggests an underlying eosinophilic asthma. One has to keep in mind that several conditions may alter the level of blood eosinophil, such as use of systemic steroids, which usually lowers the blood eosinophil significantly. Therefore, if you're dealing with a patient with asthma who's just completing an oral steroid course, you have to really wait and measure the blood eosinophil at least seven days after they stop their oral steroid treatment. Also, other conditions, like I mentioned, parasitic infestation, but drug allergies can also cause high blood eosinophils. So blood eosinophils have actually characteristic of a good biomarkers because they have prognostic implication. 
The higher the blood eosinophil, the higher the risk of exacerbation in patients with severe asthma. But they have predictive uh, properties because they can predict response to certain treatments such as steroids, but also such as use of anti-IL-5 agents, anti-IL-4 agents. These are biologic, which we'll talk about in a minute. But they also have a pharmacodynamic properties, especially with treatment with steroids, but also treatment with anti-IL-5 agents or biologics. The second biomarker we want to talk about is a gas. It's exhaled gas, uh, and it's pheno, or exhaled nitric oxide, which is measured in the exhaled air. And usually, if it's high, if it's above 25 parts per billion, reflects underlying T2 airway inflammation, and it's actually a point of care test that can be measured both in primary care setting, but also in specialty care. As it is with blood eosinophil, uh, there are lots of uh, potential confounders that may affect uh, the exhaled nitric oxide level. So at least three separate measurements should be done to confirm if a patient has high pheno to suggest T2 inflammation. It is also a good biomarker for monitoring compliance with inhaled corticosteroid therapy, as it usually is high in patients who are not taking inhaled corticosteroid or not taking it adequately. It is a predictive biomarker, meaning that it, it does predict response to steroid therapy, but also does predict response to certain biologic, including dupilumab, which is an IL-4 receptor antagonist. However, as I mentioned, uh, the levels of pheno can uh, be affected by many confounders, including certain foods, exposures, and also age. The third biomarker I want to mention is serum immunoglobulin E, or IgE. IgE is usually a good biomarker to reflect possible underlying allergic asthma. Although we don't depend on serum IgE alone to diagnose allergic asthma, we look at allergen-specific IgE or skin testing, but also at symptoms, usually upper airway symptoms, to compile the fact that patient has allergic asthma. You really have a patient to have an allergic type of symptoms, upper airway symptoms, positive IgE, and more importantly, positive skin test or positive allergen-specific IgE. The amount of IgE or the level of IgE is not prognostic or predictive uh, of response to anti-IgE therapy. So as opposed to other biomarkers, while it is important, it does not have prognostic or predictive implication, and neither does it have a pharmacodynamic properties. So on the horizon, there are other potential uh, biomarkers, including serum and also imaging biomarkers, that are beyond the, today's discussion. So let's go back to our, our patient and uh, what biomarkers should we order, and are there any preferable in primary care? Where we talked about CBC with differential, I think that's a given. I, you you can always easily order a total IgE, and sometimes you can have access to measuring allergen specific IgE or uh, aeroallergen IgE. Now, pheno may or may not be available in all primary care settings. This is an evolving biomarker. That's something that is approved by FDA. It is reimbursable, but it's not as commonly used, although maybe things will change. So let's imagine the results of our patients. Blood eosinophil came back very highly elevated, say 450 cells per cubic liter, and we were 
we managed to look at her blood eosinophil in the past and they were also elevated and now we can make the diagnosis of eosinophilic asthma um, so the patient has severe eosinophilic asthma and let's discuss management what are we going to do with her and what are the available therapies uh, indicated to treat severe eosinophilic asthma now mind you most patients with eosinophilic asthma are responsive to inhaled corticosteroid therapy provided the patient is compliant taking their inhaler and taking the inhaler correctly however in some cases such as this patient targeted therapies including biologics may be needed now there are several biologics that have been approved now for treatment of asthma and for treatment of eosinophilic asthma the three Biologics that in, are included that target interleukin-5 include mepolizumab, uh, resluzumab, and the drug that targets interleukin-5 receptor is benralizumab. Now, mepolizumab and benralizumab are administered subcutaneously, uh, either once a month in mepolizumab or once every two months after three-monthly injection with benralizumab. Resluzumab is an IV infusion given weight-based, and it's given once a month. Now, mepolizumab and berolizumab are approved to be given at home, uh, and they are, uh, mepolizumab is approved for six years of age and older. Uh, Benralizumab is approved for 12 years of age and older, and resluzumab is approved for 18 years of age and older. Now, dupilumab is a drug that targets IL-4 uh, alpha receptor, and it is approved for eosinophilic asthma. It is given bi-weekly, every two weeks, subcutaneously, and it's also approved for oral corticosteroid-dependent asthma. So these are the biologics that have been approved for eosinophilic asthma. Naturally, we do have a drug that targets IgE, omeluzumab, and it is indicated for allergic asthma with or without eosinophilia. And the drug is administered every two or four weeks based on the IgE level and weight. Omeluzumab and dupilumab both are also approved for home administration. There are several biologic in the pipeline. Indeed, uh, more and more are to come. And one of the most promising is a, a biologic that targets the epithelial cytokine. Uh, uh, TSLP, desipilumab, but there are others that target other epithelial cytokines or alarmins like anti-IL-33. These agents will not be discussed today because they are still under development. So let's go back to these biologic. I mentioned lots of monoclonal antibodies. Where, where, where do these biologics fit in the management landscape and, uh, and, and also asthma guidelines? So as I mentioned, uh, there are lots of uh, potential overlap between these biologics. And in fact, some patients may be candidates for, for one or more, uh, you know. Uh, and so the choice of biologic is certainly based on the type of asthma you're dealing with, the age of the patient, but also the characteristic of asthma, as well as the presence or absence of comorbidities. For children, mepolizumab and Omeluzumab are approved for six years of age and older, um, while Benra and Dupi are approved for children 12 years of age and older. So let's come back to our patient. You think that she would benefit from a biologic agent approved for severe 
eosinophilic asthma. The question is, what do you need to know before starting a patient on any biologic? And I understand as a primary care clinician, you would probably at this point refer to a specialist, but I think it's good to know that we, when whenever we contemplate starting a biologic, we really have to, to wait and check, do we really need, do you think the patient really needs a biologic? Because most patients who are uncontrolled, they have uncontrolled asthma because of potential um, poor compliance. We have to make sure the patient is taking their inhaler, they're taking it correctly. We also want to make sure the diagnosis is correct. Uh, you know, is this asthma after all? So we're checking lung function, we're confirming the diagnosis. We're looking at any triggers or uh, um, allergens or comorbidities that are making the asthma worse. So those have to be dealt with. So all this checklist has to be done before you even jump into starting biologic therapy. It's very imperative to keep that in mind before you start thinking, let me refer to a specialist for a biologic uh, therapy um, uh, assessment. Then you can do some homework, and one of the homework is to try to know what type of phenotype you're dealing with, measure some biomarkers that we talked about, and then you, at this point, you're ready to refer to a specialist. So when do you refer to a specialist? In general, patients with severe uncontrolled asthma requiring two or more courses of oral steroids in the last year, or those who need hospitalization or have had one life-threatening asthma exacerbation, should be referred to a specialist for assessment. You know, as a specialist, you know, I like to see these patients, not to keep them in my practice, to try to come to a plan and coordinate with the primary care office for follow-up. If the patient is candidate for a biologic, we may need further testing uh, and so on. Now that I've highlighted some strategies in the identification and management of eosinophilic asthma, I want to share some additional tips that may be useful um, for you to know as primary care clinicians. It is very important, again, to confirm the diagnosis before you venture on these treatments. Just to remind you, and actually a very nice Canadian study has shown that among patients with asthma, 30% of so-called asthmatics don't have the diagnosis. So it's imperative when you see a patient come to you with asthma symptoms. Naturally, this patient, Anne, has confirmed asthma. We have lung function. But some of the patients you see for, for a new patient to see in the clinic, you really need to confirm the diagnosis. And confirming the diagnosis is not by symptoms. You have to measure or do physiologic assessment. And spirometry is very important. Then you need to assess triggers and assess comorbidities. And of course, asthma management involves lifestyle changes, a good environmental control, um, and a good obtaining good environmental and occupation history is imperative in assessing asthma. Many modifiable factors and comorbidities can be identified by a good history and treated. And of course, the patient has comorbidities such as upper airway disease, like this patient. She has sinusitis, rhinitis, GERD is an important uh, comorbidity, obesity, sleep apnea, all these have to be addressed to obtain optimal outcome. I introduced you the concept of biomarker testing. I think some of these biomarker tests can be done in the clinic, certainly a CBC with differential 
to look at blood eosinophil, IgE level, or allergen-specific IgE, and if you have access to pheno, those would be a very important biologics. And of course, we continue to treat patients with inhaled corticosteroid plus long-acting bronchodilators, either Relaba or Relama or both. And if only if the patient fails and continues to have symptoms, that's when you may think about introducing a targeted therapy. Well, that brings us towards the end of this podcast. Thank you again for listening uh, this podcast on eosinophilic asthma. I hope you feel now well equipped and at least better equipped to identify and managing such patients in your practice. To obtain your CME credit, please visit primed.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you listen to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description where there is a direct link to the activity page on primed.com for claiming CME credit.